Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of HodgePod. And uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about something very important to our everyday lives, and that is sleep. And I have a special guest on this episode. Dr. Barry Krakow is a board-certified internist and sleep medicine specialist, internationally recognized for the discovery and implementation of the most advanced approaches to solving the disabling sleep problems experienced in mental illness. His new book, Life-Saving Sleep, New Horizons in Mental Health Treatment, opens up a revolutionary system for treating mental health disorders by targeting the underlying sleep dysfunction. Dr. Krakow has also appeared on ABC 2020, ABC Primetime, and has been featured on Time Magazine and The New Yorker. And I'm done with my introduction here. And uh, Dr. Krakow, thank you so much for joining my podcast about sleep. I am really uh, looking forward to this. Well, thanks for having me, Robin. Are you ready to go to sleep? I, I wish I was. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm a little bit. Uh, my bedtime's coming up very shortly <laughs> here on Central Time. So, but mm-hmm. uh, thank you very much for uh, joining my podcast. So, the first thing I wanted to ask you first off is, uh, what? Why is sleep so important to us in our everyday life? If we look at the question from the opposite direction, we can ask. What happens to you when you don't sleep or don't sleep well? And the answer is all kinds of dysfunction of your brain, your heart, your body, your mind. You're exhausted during the day. You have difficulty with memory, concentration, and attention. You can develop high blood pressure, heart disease, heart failure, heart arrhythmias. And so it should be obvious. It's not obvious. It should be obvious for you. And in fact, a good sleep quality, better memory, concentration, attention, you will in effect be smarter. You have much less risk for developing high blood pressure. You have a much greater chances of having healthy heart for a very long time. Uh, sleep disorders are extremely common as you get older. And by older, I mean anything after the age of 40. Mm-hmm. And heart disease starts kicking in at the age of 40 and 50. And by getting good sleep, you're going to delay many of the changes that happen to your heart and to your brain. That is fascinating. So what, how many hours of sleep should we get a night, uh, every night? So I've heard, what is it, eight hours? But what is the constitutes a great night of sleep? Well, that's exactly the, the, the point we're raising here. It really isn't about the hours of sleep. It's the hours of good, great quality slumber. So, for example, if you only six and a half hours, six and a half hours, but you feel great, you have no trouble with your blood pressure, you see that your memory and concentration and your energy levels are all going, you know, in a good direction, well, then that suggests you only need six and a half hours. Unfortunately, too many people in the media and healthcare professions uh, profess this uh, conventional wisdom that we need eight hours of sleep or even seven hours of sleep. It's really not correct. The answer to the question is, how many hours of good sleep do you need? When you figure out how good your quality is and you improve the quality of your sleep, you're very likely to discover that's the number of hours of sleep you need. Some people need nine. Some people need five and a half. It's all about the quality of sleep. Very little to do with the quantity. So if somebody has six and a half hours of sleep and uh, versus someone who may have eight hours, does it matter uh, like the next day they're feeling stronger 
uh, versus maybe somebody who sleeps too much, they may feel tired. Is there a difference between that? Absolutely. And the question speaks to the issue of the two most common complaints that people have about their sleep. They either sleep too little (laughs) or they sleep too much. And you can't figure out why. The interesting thing is both of them often suffer something of the same problem. Having sleep, I've got some drawings, what we call schematics of how the brain is functioning during sleep. And of course, in a sleep lab, it looks like a bunch of squiggly lines. Well, those squiggly lines are supposed to show a very slow rhythmical pattern, Mm -hmm. which suggests deeper sleep. When they don't show that pattern, that means something is interrupting it. And so when that sleep gets interrupted, we call that sleep fragmentation. Mm -hmm. The sleep is no longer deep. It's now light, superficial sleep. And now that person either has one of two problems or both. One problem is if your sleep is too light, you're naturally going to wake up more and you may develop insomnia. The difficulty of falling asleep and staying asleep. That's how people get addicted to these. If you keep waking up a lot and having this fragmented sleep, your brain is also going to say, I want more sleep. I want more sleep. And now the next thing you know, the person is sleeping nine or 10 hours a day, including napping during the day. Mm -hmm. And they're going, hey, what's going on? Why am I so different? So you see, it's actually the same problem. And let's go back to the beginning. This is a sleep quality problem, not a sleep quantity problem, not number of hours of sleep problem. It's all about the sleeping brain waves and what's going on with them. I've heard about the quality. Quality is better than quantity. So uh, can you explain it a little bit more about insomnia and why do we wake up at night? What are some of the reasons why we wake up at night? Sometimes I'll wake up and sometimes the stress of the, my job or something on my mind and then I can't get back to sleep. So what keeps us awake at night? And uh, if you could elaborate more on insomnia, because uh, I know a lot of people probably suffer from that. Right, right. It's an excellent point because insomnia is something that everybody thinks about in terms of the psychological aspects, meaning I had a, you know, a difficult day at work, I've got some stress, so maybe that's what's causing me to wake up. Over the years of being a physician for close to 40 years, I've learned that it's best to think of virtually all illness as a mind-body problem. There's really never anything, as far as I can tell in my experience, that's just mental or just physical. Mm-hmm. And it turns out insomnia is very uh, much in that ballpark. So here's what I mean. There's no question that if you worry too much, if you're anxious, if you're thinking about what happened yesterday, and you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, then obviously that'd be a very easy way to develop insomnia. So that's the psychological component. Interesting. But in our research studies that are dating back now, in our research studies that are dating back now, you know, almost 30 years, we discovered that most people with insomnia have physical problems that are waking them up, and they don't even know this. The most common is a sleep-breathing condition, and the sleep-breathing condition is actually the major cause of their awakenings. Now, what's so cool about that is you can treat that. You can treat a sleep-breathing condition – 
in an insomniac, and you can have insomnia. And that person is shocked to hear that because they've been going along for 10 or 20 years, trying different pills, trying different gimmicks, thinking this is all a psychological problem. But in our experience, chronic insomnia almost always includes a sleep breathing component. And that means very good news for insomniacs because it's not just all mental. Interesting. So how does that get treated then? Uh, does it get treated by drugs or do you able to go to like a sleep uh, specialist to, you know, maybe check out how you're sleeping and do a sleep test? How does that work out? I think you're ready to become a sleep doctor's assistant based on the way you're asking these questions. Great. <laughs> excellent. So, excellent. So, so what we do is we first try to figure out in terms of the insomnia patient. And as you know, as you mentioned about my book, I specialize in the treatment of people who are suffering mental health symptoms, such as anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. And many of these people have insomnia nightmares, but they don't realize they also have this sleep breathing condition. So they're used to talking the language of psychotherapy, psychotropic medications, sleeping pills, and we have to explain to them, well, there's another option. And that other option is looking at your actual sleep patterns in a sleep lab, finding out what your squiggly brainwave patterns show, and determining to what extent it's related to a sleep breathing condition. Once we learn that, we can say, well, you have a sleep breathing disorder. If you want to try a dental device to treat your breathing, or if you want to try a pap machine to treat your sleep breathing, we can do all of that. But many people are not ready for that big jump mm -hmm. because it seems odd. They've been thinking for years about the stress, the worry, the sleeping pills. It's all psychological. And now somebody comes along and says, oh, we'll try this this really cumbersome CPAP mask. So in my book, we have this very lengthy section on what's called early conservative treatment steps that helps a person understand that they can actually attack their insomnia tonight as soon as they're listening to this podcast. Yes, sir. In, in very simple ways that allows their breathing to start getting better. And then when that happens, happy insomnia gets better then they're hooked and they realize all this time that they could have been working on their breathing let me give you a couple of tips let's say you suffer from nasal congestion which is an extremely common finding in people with insomnia and in people with sleep breathing conditions it may be congestion it could be stuffiness it could be runny nose the point is you could work on what's called nasal hygiene. All of that's described in the book, Life-Saving Sleep, where you can use some nasal sprays to clean out your nose. You could use some nasal strips on your nose. You could use some nasal dilators in your nose. Any of these things are very simple. They're relatively inexpensive. Mm -hmm. We've done research on these items. And insomnia patients who use such treatments Will in more than fifty to seventy percent, fifty to seventy-five percent of cases, report that their insomnia got better because their nasal breathing got better. 
Wow. So it's very exciting for them. When they hear this, they go, you mean I can just go to the drugstore and <laughs> get this stuff and try it? And, and I might start sleeping better? I say, yes, because when your sleep breathing is better, your sleep quality is better. When your sleep quality is better, your insomnia decreases. So we devised this program because we knew so many people were not ready to try CPAP just like that. Now, this is not a knock on PAP therapy. I encourage many people with insomnia to go to sleep centers to undergo testing and consider PAP therapy. But nowadays, it may take time to get in for sleep testing. It may take time to get in to see a sleep doctor. It could take weeks and months. Tonight, you can go, you know, tomorrow, you can go to a drugstore. You can, you know, buy some of these um, tools, these, these, you know, over-the-counter uh, remedies mm-hmm. and start treating your insomnia. Then down the line, you're much more prepared to ever try, you know, a pap machine or a dental device because your nose has to work for you to be able to use a pap machine. Interesting. That is fascinating. So you had mentioned earlier something about nightmares and it's weird because sometimes when I, you know, for me, sometimes when I sleep, I'll wake up after a nightmare. It's the weirdest thing. And then I have a hard time getting back to sleep. So can you elaborate how like nightmares happen by chance or why they happen? Or is it something that, what, what would that be? <laughs> yeah. Nightmares are very interesting. It's the way I started in sleep medicine in 1988 working with a group of psychiatrists where we learned that a simple cognitive imagery technique where you teach people to reevaluate the content of their nightmares in a certain way and change it, that alone can decrease bad dreams. Now, what's so interesting about that idea is that for decades, if not centuries, People always assumed there was no treatment for nightmares. They always assumed that you had bad dreams because bad things happened to you, and therefore you reflected on the bad things at night while you were sleeping in the form of dreams. And that is, relatively speaking, true. So, you know, PTSD patients, trauma survivors with post-traumatic stress disorder, often have many nightmares, and there's no question that's where the nightmares started. But nightmares often take on a life of their own and become an independent sleep disorder. And what we learned was that learned disorder, so to speak, can be unlearned. Now, again, what's interesting is not only is it a psychological component, but just like insomnia, many patients with nightmares also have sleep breathing conditions. And there's now nine published studies In the scientific literature, they're not the highest caliber studies yet, but they're still very good, and they all point in the exact same direction. Mm -hmm. Nine studies show that if you use a CPAP machine to treat chronic nightmares, there's a very good chance 50% of your your disturbing dreams will go away. Wow. Just from treating the sleep-breathing condition. So here, once again... It's psychological and it's physiological. There's a treatment for nightmares that's treating your breathing. There's a treatment for nightmares using a technique called imagery rehearsal therapy. It's described in the book. It's a technique 
that we developed in 1988 and then pioneered throughout the 1990s and the 2000s. It's now a leading, if not the leading, non-drug treatment for people with chronic nightmares. Most people, by the way, with nightmares have no idea that there is a treatment for nightmares. And I've just given you two of them. Wow. That is fascinating because nightmares are really weird. I'll, you know, sometimes I'll have dreams where I haven't things out of the blue and it's weird and you wake up and it's like have a hard time getting back to sleep and you, you wait, wait, did it happen? Like years ago I, I had stopped smoking and, uh, and then I had dreams. I was smoking cigarettes and I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm like, I haven't smoked in two years and I'm smoking a cigarette. It was the weirdest thing. That was a nightmare to me, but that's just, you know, maybe that's something that I have. <laughs> well, nightmares are surprisingly quite common. Um, they occur in no less than 4 or 5% of adults on a regular basis. And what I mean by that is they have it at least once a week and usually two or three times a week, and the nightmares live on with them through the day. It's not just I had a bad dream and then that's it. They have a bad dream, it disrupts their sleep, it interferes with the way they feel the next day, and then worst off, later in the day, they start thinking about the nightmare again and reliving the same horrible things. And so it's very disturbing to them. It's an actual disorder that most psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists know little about. And very few of them understand that nightmares can be treated beyond just giving somebody a pill. Mm. So what is the impact of sleep on another topic of suicide? What is what have you learned through your studies experience over your career as far as with sleep on suicide? It's a very important topic and very under-researched and underfunded for research because, again, uh, most people, even in the healthcare profession and in health research uh, uh, spheres, completely either disrespect or under underestimate the importance of sleep. And yet, if you look at the scientific literature already, over the last 20 years, there's reports about if you have insomnia, you're at risk for suicidal ideation and behaviors. If you have nightmares, if you have sleep apnea, we'd like to see lots more research showing that if you treated your insomnia, if you treated your nightmares, if you treated your sleep apnea, would this in fact decrease your suicidal ideation and behavior? And so let's make it very simple because we can't talk about lots of great research that is not out there yet. There's mm -hmm. some that points in this direction. But just think about this. If you're depressed, if you're irritable, if you're anxious, uh, if your life isn't going well, how are you going to feel when you wake up every morning exhausted, tired, mm -hmm. uh, really, really bent out of shape because you had this horrible night of sleep? Now, let's compare that same person and say, well, we just waved a magic wand over you, and now you have great sleep. We fixed your sleep apnea. We fixed your insomnia. We fixed your nightmares. Now you wake up in the morning. You've got a full head of steam. You've got energy. Your memory, your concentration is all working better. You feel like you can uh, take on challenges. You feel like you can cope. You can confront you know, the different stressors during the day, which of those two people is going to be more at risk for suicide? 
or suicidal thinking and suicidal behaviors? The answer should be obvious, and you would think that researchers would be pouring really millions of dollars into understanding this because this is obvious aspect of how people go down, you know, very dark pathways of despair that lead them into thoughts of hurting themselves, which is, you know, an awful place to be for sure. And we know that in many circles where suicide has occurred, that the story is very common that the person was having sleep problems beforehand and that person was never, and I mean never, sent to a sleep center or to a sleep doctor for an evaluation. They were just given pills and more pills and some psychotherapy, and nobody picked up on the fact that these very complex sleep disorders were affecting the suicidal patient. Wow. So this should be like this is, should be like the top of the list. I mean, for for people who have uh, depression or are going through PSD or have so, suicidal thoughts, there should be like massive testing so people can get tested for that and may, like you said, reduce suicide. It's it's absolutely incredible that uh, this information that you're. Uh, it's incredible. Um, yeah, we say from we say from your lips to God's ear. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you a question about this. Like during the day, like the other day, my eyes were like heavy during the middle of the day, and then I took a quick ten minute nap and I felt refreshed. What are how 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 good are like power naps? Or we, I I think are they power naps? Or if you get like ten fifteen minutes of sleep, does that help recharge the body? Naps are a very interesting topic. I hope to write another book about just napping because it's so interesting <laughs> and, and there's so much information that people can benefit from. Uh, absolutely, there is uh, the power nap process that you're describing. Uh, the key aspect of napping is to ask whether or not when you nap, do you feel better afterwards? If you do not feel better after a nap, uh, if you're old enough to remember not Monopoly, that means do not pass go, do not collect $200, <laughs> go directly to a sleep center, because if you feel worse, that is very much a high probability red flag signal. There's something seriously wrong with your sleep, and you should be tested in a sleep center. Now, there's another side to that, which is, can you make your naps better so you won't have a bad nap. And the answer to that goes to sort of what you talked about. That is, the shorter the nap and the earlier in the day the nap generally works best for most people. That's not a hard and fast rule, mm -hmm. but it's something that you can play with. In other words, the longer you nap, there is a greater risk that you're going to feel worse if there's an underlying condition. But on the other hand, what if you're a night shift worker and you have to split your sleep into two different periods during the day? We would never say to that person, don't nap, because right. all the sleep they're getting is probably going to help them a great deal. So napping is a very intricate process for people who want to nap. They just have to learn to pay attention to the timing, the duration, and how they feel. And another step I would add based on the earlier conversation about conservative steps. Let's suppose you had the experience 
that you napped and you didn't think it was that good quality and you actually didn't feel that refreshed. Well, how about trying a little nasal dilator inside your nose while you nap and find out whether or not you suddenly have a better nap? Hmm. That's incredibly useful information because it tells you the reason why your nap didn't work out so well, you have a sleep breathing problem. Now you can go in and take that knowledge and move on to sleep center or other steps, whatever you want. Again, described in the Life-Saving Sleep book, which, by the way, is available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. So napping, the last point I want to make is napping is a lifesaver. There's so many people who use naps appropriately because they know they have to perform a task. They know they may have to drive a car. I've met so many people over my career who say, I know I have to pull off on the side of the road in a safe place to nap because I can tell that I am too sleepy to drive safely. And I applaud those people. And I say, well, hopefully you'll you know, go on and do more about it. But they recognize, unfortunately, there's people who don't understand that. And that's part of how we have motor vehicle crashes from people who are actually too sleepy behind the wheel. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That nap I had the other day, I felt really refreshed. But then you had saw, talked about there have been naps where I've woken up and it's like I feel groggy for like two hours. And that just like what you just said just like made me like think, wow, it's it's incredible. Absolutely. Incredible. No, that may be valuable. That may be valuable information for you that maybe something else is going on. And maybe you'll try napping some with, uh, you know, some nasal hygiene steps or a nasal dilator. And if you were to notice the naps were better, you, you may say, okay, well, this is all I need right now. But in the back of your mind, you'll be saying, wait a second, maybe I need to be looking more deeply into my own sleep because maybe there's something more there that I can improve upon. So uh, talk about your book, please, Life-Saving Sleep. And uh, how long has it been out and um, how it can save someone's life? Because I find uh, the book is, uh, is very useful uh, for people for sleep. So please explain the bo- on the book. Sure. Uh, I've been working in sleep medicine for, you know, several decades, and this is a compilation of, you know, really all of the, the, the great therapeutic steps and tricks and gimmicks and tips that we've put together over the years to help people learn to use PAP machines or deal with insomnia or treat restless legs and leg jerks. But I'll give you a, a, one, one example, and we can, you know, have some more discussion, whatever you want, but Let me give an example of how unbelievably important sleep is when you realize what it can do to literally save lives. And here's a great one in populations, generally speaking, over 50, 60, 70. Most people do not know that trips to the bathroom at night are not normal. Most people think from their doctors that if you wake up at night and go and pee, that everybody does that. In fact, depending upon the doctor you go to, they'll tell you once or twice per night. Absolutely normal. Couldn't be more wrong, and in many cases, could be dead wrong. And here's why. Nocturia, which is the name for that condition of, mm-hmm. of you know trips to the bathroom at night, nocturia may be caused by drinking too much water, could be caused by a medication you're taking. Uh, could be caused by um, some kind of bladder problem or prostate problem. 
But what's one of the leading causes of trips to the bathroom at night is a sleep breathing disorder. Now you go, wait a second. This guy's been talking about everything <laughs> sleep disorder breathing. What, you know, what's, what's, what's he got up his sleeve this time? Well, the scientific literature for more than three decades has shown that if you have a sleep breathing disorder, it actually forces more blood into your heart during the night, more blood that your heart doesn't need. So your heart says, I'm going to release a diuretic into the system and I'm going to send that diuretic to the kidneys and my kidneys are going to make more water to pass through during the night. Now you have the explanation for why so many people wake up at night to pee because they have a sleep breathing condition that releases that diuretic diuretic that triggers the kidneys to make too much fluid. All right, why is it a lifesaver? Because what's one of the leading causes of death in the long term? It's people wake up at night, they trip, they fall, they break a hip, they go into the hospital, mm. they get surgery, and depending upon how well they have an outcome, they may die from a blood clot just being in the hospital. They may die for a poor recovery from that hip surgery. And so there's a classic example. We have known this for three decades, and yet elderly people in nursing homes and other places are getting up to use the bathroom because they have sleep apnea. They don't have to get up if somebody would treat their sleep apnea. That's just one example. Another would be the fact that we're treating the sleepiness that's involved in car accidents. Another example is we're treating the exhaustion involved in mental health patients who become suicidal or who become impaired and don't even take their medications properly and die of an unintentional overdose. There's so many ways in which health is affected by our sleep that if we learn to get good quality sleep, everybody involved in that situation becomes healthier and thereby, relatively speaking, safer. Wow. That's, that, that, that is just like information that uh, hopefully my listeners will, will gather when they listen to this. So what about, what does sleep do for our body, like for our brain? Like, like at the end of the day, you know, so, sometimes we all feel exhausted at the end of the day, mentally drained. So does sleep like recharge our brain to do the task the next day? People who exercise, does exercise help out people uh, in their sleeping as well? That's a two-pronged question, so. Sure, sure. For most people who exercise, there's a good chance it's going to help you sleep deeper or more continuously during the night. Exercise is generally good for circulation, so it's a very important component, and it should not be uh, undervalued, it's, although it's not the cure for sleep problems. The most important thing to understand about sleep that we is only recent research is that the brain doesn't just need a rest during the night. The brain needs to be cleaned during the night. Toxins and waste products need to be removed. And so we call this healthy brain washing. There's an actual system in the brain that works when you're sleeping, and it works best when you're in deep sleep. So now research is pointing to the fact that if you don't get deep sleep, 
and your brain doesn't get washed properly, that's its own risk factor for developing dementia. So obviously, if it's a risk for developing dementia, it's a risk for developing problems in concentration, memory, and attention, not to mention not having the same level of mental and physical energy the next day mm. when you're trying to you know, take on your tasks. So it's incredibly important to realize that sleep does all of this for you, but only when you have high quality slumber. Again, it's not about the hours of sleep. It's about getting good quality. Wow. Incredible. What other tips would you give through your uh, research and your experience in treating folks uh, maybe that would help somebody get uh, better sleep, you know, moving forward? I think the most important thing is a paradigm shift where the individual asks themselves, could the problem that I've been dealing with for this period of time, could it be related to sleep? Or does sleep have some influence on it that I'm not realizing? For example, just having chronic aches and pains during the day. You'd think, well, okay, am I getting older? Well, it turns out people who sleep better tend to report better healing from various injuries or even arthritis problems they could be suffering from. And so what I'm driving at is start paying more attention to your energy level, your capacity, your thinking capacity, um, your physical capacity. Give yourself the opportunity to think about, is sleep, what's happening at night, doing something to me during the day that I previously not recognized? I think when people go down that pathway, it opens up a new window, and now they're looking at their health in a different way. Most people just finish with a sleep, maybe have a cup of coffee, they get on with their day, and so they don't really give sleep much attention, much respect, and they miss out on this opportunity to look at sleep as a health factor that might have a very important influence on their life. I think that's the most important tip I can give to anybody who hasn't really been paying attention to their sleep to this point. And it's interesting. A third of our day is actually, if you think about it, is resting and sleeping. So, yes, I would think it's a, a vital importance, as you said. I find that it's just incredible. So right. uh, your book, again, Dr. Barry Krakow, his book is called Life Saving Sleep, New Horizons in Mental Health Treatment. And it opens up a revolutionary system for treating mental health disorders by targeting the underlying sleep dysfunction, which we talked about earlier. Dr. Krakow, I want to thank you very much. It's been quite an honor to have you on my podcast to talk about this. I've been looking forward to this, and uh, it was quite, quite informative. It's great. It's great. I really appreciate our discussion. Let me give you just a couple of quick other resources. Sure. On my website, barrykrakowmd.com. Uh, I run a sleep coaching program that a person can sign up for, and that's for individual sessions. I also have books and uh, videos uh, that are on. Some of them are free. I have a whole nasal breathing series that's free on that website. And I have some books on uh, uh, and, and uh, a workbook and audio series for sale on treating chronic nightmares and some other books for treating insomnia. 
So that website has a lot of resources, barrycracomd.com. And last, I have a um, newer free uh, newsletter on Substack. It's called fastasleep.substack.com. I usually post on it weekly. Um, I have some of the podcasts I'm doing now, you know, to promote the book. And I'm also uh, usually reporting weekly on something new in research and sleep uh, to give my comments on, on how I would approach the new findings. So a lot of new information you can get uh, on both of those two sources, the Substack free newsletter and my website, barrycracomd.com. Well, uh, thank you so much. And I hope anybody who listens to this gets that information, learn about your sleep. And again, thank you very much for joining me again. It's truly honor. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and have a great night's sleep. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes, I will. And, uh, thanks again.